All right, so Hebrews chapter 7. I'm going to read the first four verses, and then we'll do some background story. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He, talking about Melchizedek, is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, either having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. All right, so Melchizedek is not mentioned prominently in Scripture until Hebrews. He's just kind of this guy that pops up. He's mentioned a couple of times, but really it's not until the book of Hebrews that we start really examining who this Melchizedek is and why he's so important. So let's all turn back to Genesis chapter 14, verse 10. Genesis chapter 14, verse 10. And as you're flipping there, I'll give you a little bit of background. So in Genesis chapter 12, Abram, as Abraham is called back then, is given this promise by God. Does everybody remember, or can anybody remember, what the components of that promise, what the components were? Land. Okay, land. Nation and name. Nation and name. Blessing. And blessing. Bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. So land, nation, name, and blessing. So that's chapter 12. In chapter 13, Abram is traveling with his nephew Lot. And they both have great wealth. They're both men of very large well, proportions of animals, um, servants, all this stuff. So much so that there starts to become some animosity between the servants of Abram and the servants of Lot. And they get together and like, look, we can't dwell together. This is causing a problem. And they said, there's enough land for both of us. So Abram and Lot go stand over a hill, and they look out of the countryside. And Abram says to Lot, okay, you pick what portion of land you want, and then I'll, I'll take the other. So Lot looks towards, I don't remember what direction it is, that way. And he sees the land towards Sodom and how absolutely beautiful it is. So he says, I'm going to pick that land. So Abram says, that's fine, you go that way, and I'll go this way, and they separate. Well, while Lot is settled in that region, some of the kings around there had been subjected to another king, and they decide, we're going to have a rebellion. So these five kings rebel against their ruler and his three allies. And during this, Sodom and Gomorrah are involved in this rebellion, well, they get defeated. And as they're fleeing, the, the other guy whose name is, it sounds like um, Chad Leomar or something mm -hmm. like that, he comes in and he captures the people who live around Sodom and Gomorrah, including Lot and his family. Well, one servant of Lot's escapes runs back to Abram and says, your relative Lot's been captured. So Abram grabs all of his servants, and of, among his servants were 340 three men who were trained in combat. So how many servants did Abram have at his disposal? 
if 343 of them are considered fit for battle. That's a lot of servants this man had. So his whole family and servants was a small city. So anyway, so Abram and his group, they pursue after these kings, overtakes them, beats the tar out of the combined armies of four kings, rescues lots, and comes back. And this is where we pick up. So if I could get somebody to start reading in verse 10 and just be prepared to be interrupted. Not everybody jump at the opportunity. Now the valley of Sinem was full of bison and pits. And as the kings... Uh-oh. You can just... Yeah. There we go. And as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions and went their way. Then one who escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, the brother of Eschol and of Aner, they were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. I said 343, my bad. Keep going. And he divided his forces against them by night, and he and his servants, and defeated them, and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions, and also brought back his kinsmen Lot, with his possessions, and the women, and the people. All right, so you have this miraculous deliverer, of Abram rescuing Lot. And if you notice that, he brought back not just Lot and all of Lot's possessions, but all the women and the people. Now, this is not just Lot's people, as we're going to see in a second. All right, someone else pick up reading in verse 17. Then after his return from the defeat of... I say Cheddar Laumer. Cheddar Laumer, thank you. And the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shava, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of God most high. All right, let's stop right there. All right, so after this victory, Abram comes back to his territory, and two men come to meet him. Who are those two men? King of Sodom, King of Sodom and, Melchizedek. and Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek, how is he described? Priest of God Most High. Priest of God Most High, and he's a king. So he's described as somebody who's a king and a priest, and not just any priest of any deity, but of God Most High. So this is a guy who worships Yahweh. So he's not a Jew, not a Hebrew, no relation to that but he is a server of the one true God. Sodom has already been mentioned in previous chapters as a wicked, evil city. So you have this righteous man, Melchizedek, coming to meet Abram, and this pagan king of the most wicked city of his day, Sodom, coming to meet him. And what does Melchizedek bring with him to talk with Abram? Him. Bread and wine. What does that make you think of? Lord's Supper. It's only worth mentioning because Hebrews makes a direct link between Melchizedek and his priesthood and Jesus. So I just saw that bread and wine, and I don't remember who preached the sermon, but I have Lord's Supper written there in the margins. This is why you write in your Bible, mm. okay? Stuff like that. 
All right, somebody else read verse 19 and 20. And, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who had delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. All right, so what do we see that Melchizedek recognizes about God just from that brief little prayer that he gives? He recognizes two things. He possesses heaven and earth. Okay. He possesses heaven and earth. Okay. What's another thing that he recognizes? He's sovereign. He's sovereign in what way? Abraham's victory was not a result of Abraham's military genius. That was a God thing. Mm -hmm. 318 is a large force, but I'm pretty sure four kings combined army would be larger than 318. So this is a God-ordained event right here. Lot was going to be rescued by Abram. And Abram accepts this blessing, and he gives a tenth of all the spoils that he got, which would have been a vast fortune indeed, he gives a tenth of that to Melchizedek. Now, as we look later in Hebrews, that's very significant. Very significant. All right, somebody else who has not read, read verse 21 and 22 and 20. You know what? Just start reading at 21. Be prepared to be interrupted. And the king... And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. Okay, now stop. That's the only quote we have from the king of Sodom. What does he ask for? People. He wants the people. What do you think he wants those people for? Evil. Evil. Yes. These are people who were, this wasn't Lot and his family. These were all the other captives that were captured by Abram. And the king of Sodom says, I want all these people. Probably to make them slaves, make them servants, sacrifice to his pagan gods. We don't know. Either way, it's evil. So the two men that meet Ab um, Abram, one blesses Abraham, praises God, and receives a tenth. The other king says, I want a bunch of slaves. What do you not see the king of Sodom say or do to Abram? What does he not do? We're trying to look at the character of these men. Doesn't bless them, and he doesn't bring more, uh, bread and wine. He doesn't. Yeah, he doesn't do anything positive. Solomon and Gomorrah and their allies had just been defeated by Cheddar Laomer. Okay, they were captured, defeated, scattered. Abram goes and defeats his enemies for him. And after doing that, you would think that the king of Sodom would be like, "Hey, thanks a lot. How can we help you?" Instead, he demands, hey, I'm taking this. I will allow you to have that. It's Abram's to do with what he wants. He's the victor. So you see arrogance. You see a lack of gratitude. The king of Sodom is not, not a good man. All right, uh, whoever I interrupted, just continue reading, please. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say I have made Abram rich. Okay, so what does, why does Abram not accept anything from the king of Sodom? 
says, I'm not having any business dealings with you. I'm not making trades with you. I'm not doing anything. I'm not going to let you give me anything. Why not? Because then it would take the credit for it. Okay. He had sworn to God. He told God. Yeah. When people look at me and they look at my wealth, no one's going to say, oh, well, he got that because he has an alliance with the king of Sodom. No, no, no. I want everybody to know that everything that I have came from God. All right, go ahead and read the last verse, please. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, es- Eskel, and Mom- is it Mamre? You have to say it with confidence. Take and I'll say their yes. share. <laughs> <laughs> so Amos said, I don't want anything. My allies can, can take the spoils. I need nothing from you. So you see Abraham's character, or Abram's as he's known then, you see what his character is and his complete reliance on God. You see Melchizedek's character, and you see the king of Sodom's character. I just thought that's one of the more interesting stories. All right, so now let's go back to Hebrews, and let's see what the writer of Hebrews, how he interprets all this. All right, so Hebrews chapter 7, verse 4. See how great this man, to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils, and those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. All right, now this is a very wordy sentence. So Abraham had what son? Who was Abraham's son? Isaac. The one that matters, okay, Isaac. (laughs) Who had a son named? Jacob. And in this case, he had a particular son, and what son are we talking about here that Jacob had? Judah. Well, in this case, Levi. Talking about Levi in this case. So, he said, Abraham gave this guy Melchizedek a tenth of his spoils. He says, in our priesthood, the priesthood of the Jews, the Levites, they collect tithes, but who are they collecting tithes from? Their brothers. Their brothers. Okay, this is an in-house thing. But Abraham gave tithes to Melchizedek, who has nothing to do with Judaism, because there really were no Jews at that point. So Melchizedek accepts tithes from Abraham. Right? Verse we're going to leave off seven. Six. Six. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Those promises being land, nation, name, blessing. <clears throat> it is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. Remember, Melchizedek blessed Abram after Abraham's victory. So that's implying Melchizedek is superior, greater than Abraham. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men. But in the other case, by one of whom it is testified, he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham. For he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. So basically this is the idea that what the father has done, 
the children kind of participated in. So Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Levi, when Abraham gave tithes to Mel, Melchizedek, that's how I'm going to write his name every time I put him on the board, saying, in the same way, it's like Levi also gave tithes to him. And the argument goes, if Melchizedek is greater than Abraham, which is greater than Isaac, which is greater than Jacob, is greater than Levi. So the author of Hebrews really wants you to understand how superior Melchizedek is to Abraham, and therefore how superior Melchizedek is in every way to the entire Levitical priesthood. Because these men, Levitical priests, who collect tithes from among other Jews in their lineage, they also gave tithes to Melchizedek. Is everybody with the logic so far? Yeah. All right. <clears throat> I kind of skipped over this part, so it's worth going back. All right. In verse 3, it says Melchizedek is without father, without mother, genealogy, and having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. There is nothing mentioned in Genesis about Melchizedek still being alive. So what in the world is this verse telling us? When you wanted to explain how important somebody was, let's take Jesus. What do you want to know about that person? Especially in Judaism. His father and his father's father, and so on and so forth. That's why you have two of the Gospels include very long genealogies of Jesus. It was very important to know what family somebody came from. Do we have any of that information on Melchizedek? <laughs> no. He's a seeming nobody. He's, he comes out of nowhere. Mm -hmm. No mention of. Back in, what's that? And disappears back into nowhere. And disappears into nowhere. So as. So the author of Hebrews takes that very enigmatic character of Melchizedek. It says he shows up. He's obviously important because Abraham gave him tithes. No mention of his father. No mention of who his mother was. No mention of how old he was, how long he'd been a priest. None of this stuff. He shows up. He's super important. And then he's just gone off the scene. So the author points out is it's like... Not that it is, it's like, this is a simile, he has no beginning and he has no end. His death is not recorded. In this way, he resembles the Son of God. This is, of course, talking about Jesus. Jesus has no beginning and he has no end. All right, so now we're ready for verse 11. All right, have I missed any of the blanks so far? I'm one through seven. One, one, one through six. Have I missed anything? Nope. Awesome. All right. The only other place that Melchizedek is mentioned is Psalm 110. That's the answer to number eight. Psalm 110. All right. So now this last section, we're going to take turns reading. And on your, uh, if you have your handout... be a group exercise 
On my sermon Sunday, I mentioned that I, I whittled it down from 13 to 6 points. I had this super long chart all written out. Beside it, you know, I only got 45 minutes max, so we get to do that today. So the next few verses from verse 11 to the end of the chapter of Hebrews is going to go back and forth telling you how in every facet imaginable, this Melchizedek is greater than Levi. So therefore, when Jesus is called a priest after the order of Melchizedek, he is a high priest superior to any of the high priest under the Levitical priesthood as well. All right, so I, I sh you should have a blank chart. I'm going to do this so you can't see my answers. And it's going to compare the Levitical high priest on the left to Jesus on the right. All right, verse 11. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? And Aaron and the Levitical priesthood are the same thing. Remember, all Levites got to serve in the temple, but only the descendants of Aaron specifically got to be high priest. So that's why it's saying the order of Aaron. All right, so if you weren't here Sunday night, you might not know the answer. But what is verse 11? It's a question, but what kind of question is it? It's a rhetorical question. Were you here Sunday night? Good man. Okay, well, not you should have been here, but good man for knowing what, what it's a rhetorical question. That's a question where I'm asking you not to really get an answer, but I'm trying to prove a point. And the point is, if you could be perfected by the Levitical priest that we've been living under for the last 1,400 years, then why was it necessary for Jesus to show up and be after the order of Melchizedek? So what is the answer to the rhetorical question? I know you don't typically answer, but what's the point being made? There's a point being made. If perfection had been attainable under the Levitical priesthood, why do we need a priest after the order of Melchizedek? Because perfection was not attainable. That's it. So the first thing that I want you to write down under Levitical high priest, perfection is not attainable. It never was. It was never going to be what is required. So therefore, what is implied about Jesus' priesthood? It doesn't openly state it in this verse. Perfection is attainable. Okay? It's implied. It does explicitly state that in chapter 10, but we're not there yet. All right, so under the biblical priesthood, perfection is not attainable. And under the priesthood of Jesus, perfection is attainable. All right, verse 12. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah and in connection with that tribe Moses said nothing about priest. Right, so the next thing we need to understand is the Levitical high priest is based strictly on the family tree. In order to serve in the temple you had to be a descendant of Levi. 
you couldn't apply for the job, you couldn't make an argument that you're better qualified, doesn't matter. If you weren't a Levite, you did not serve in the temple. And if you weren't directly a descendant of Aaron, you could never be the high priest. I mean, that's simply the way it was. So the Levitical priesthood is based on a family tree. Now let's see about <coughs> Jesus's. Verse 15. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, that's a fancy way of saying family tree, but by the power of what? Indestructible life. Indestructible life. An indestructible life. So the Levitical priesthood is based on your family lineage, your family tree. Jesus' priesthood is based on his indestructible life. Anybody with me so far? Any questions? All right, the next one down, it doesn't, it's not explicitly stated, but it, it is implied once again. Levites were not allowed to be king. Levites were not allowed to be a king over Israel. What's the only two tribes that had kings that sat on the throne of Israel? Judas one. Ben, no. Saul was Benjamin, right? Benjamin, yeah. Those are the only two tribes. So the Levites were not allowed to be one. So while the Levites were priests who cannot be kings, Jesus, because he is of the order of Melchizedek, is both a priest and a king. That would never would have been allowed of the Mosaic Covenant. Verse 17, for it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. All right, so I'm going to read verse 18 and 19. I'm talking a lot. So I'm going to read 18 and 19. For on the one hand, there is a annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness. For the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. All right. So if I was to ask you, what is the main point of comparison in that verse, how would you answer? It says something about the old priesthood. It says something about this new priesthood. The new is better. The new is definitely better. What are the adjectives used to describe the old one? Weak and useless. Weak and useless. Okay, that, this, that's not flattering. You can see why if you were a Jewish priest and you got a copy of this letter, whoever wrote it and, and you were reading it, you'd be very, very offended. Yeah. Your entire job that you're doing is pointless, is what it's saying. You're wasting your time. And, I mean, that kept clear of the law. The temple and the sacrifice was a significant portion of the Jewish culture, so that would have probably stung a little bit to hear. It would um, have. To the, the, the Hebrew congregation, yeah. Oh, yeah. Probably. I mean, so now, once you understand how important that temple was to Jewish culture, when Jesus said things like, you tear down this temple in three days, I'll raise it up, you can understand why that, that was a, an incredibly rude statement to make. It would have been a, highly mm -hmm. offensive. Mm -hmm. 
I mean, Jesus is just ripping down all their little, how many used to, their sacred cows. Sacred, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just ripping apart the things that they hold most dear. Like, you, you are so proud of this temple, it's nothing. It's absolutely nothing. Jesus saying things, you know, undoing the, you tell me, or the law says this, but I say to you, and he adds something to it, or he reinterprets it. In other words, he's saying all these, the scribes, Pharisees, leave, um, Sadducees, all these people who have been adding, interpreting the law, they're wrong. Mm -hmm. And when he says, it's written, and he quotes scripture, and then he says, but I say to you, what is Jesus claiming right there? He's God. He's higher than scripture. Yeah. yeah. I, can, I can, I don't want to use the word change. I'm the correct arbiter of the truth of what scripture is. And I'm here to fix all the misunderstandings you guys have. And, of course, they didn't take that too long. So, yeah, the author of Hebrews here says the old covenant, the old priesthood is weak, it is useless, it's not profitable, and it says nothing was made perfect under the law. Mm. And, Jamie, how does he, what does he say about the new one? Um, it's better. It's better, and what, what does it allow us to do? Draw near to God. It allows us to draw near to God. The old one was all about separating you from God. So again, my beautiful artwork. Here's the Ark of the Covenant representing God's presence. In the innermost chamber, a really thick curtain. The Holy of Holies here, the holy place. Here's the outside of the temple property, got this courtyard. And most people weren't even allowed in there. Just layer upon layer, separating every sinful human from a holy and righteous God. You couldn't draw near to God. You were separated from God, and you were constantly reminded that you were never allowed to go into God's presence because who was the only person allowed to go in here? The high priest one time a year. Once a year. So now we have a better hope, better than any of that, where we can draw near to God. Everybody with me? All right, verse 20. Who wants to read uh, 20 and 21 and 22? And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But, those, but this one who was made a priest with an oath, but by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. And going to be 22. This makes Jesus the grantor of a better covenant. Okay, so there are two things here. What is one major difference between the anointing of a high priest under the Levitical priesthood compared to Jesus being anointed as a high priest? And this is in verse 20. If you became a Levitical high priest, you did not have this as part of your ordination. And no, there's no oath given. But there is with Jesus. And it talks about one here. This is God speaking. This again quoting Psalm 110. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You, speaking to Jesus, are a priest for how long? Forever. Forever. That's, an, that's an oath. Um, we talk about Psalms a lot, and it's worth mentioning again, that... 
the author of Hebrews frequently goes back to Psalms. And he takes these Psalms that the Jews have been very familiar with and says, all these Psalms that you guys love to quote that talk about God, the creator of the universe, God who orchestrates everything according to his will, all these that speak about God, they are speaking about God, but they're speaking about Jesus. The author wants you to understand, I'm taking these passages about Yahweh and saying, oh, they're about Jesus. Therefore, undergirding what doctrine? All these psalms that are about Yahweh, Yahweh creating the universe, are actually about Jesus. Therefore, Jesus is God. 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 There we go. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. Give me some answers. Right. And because of this, what verse 22 says Jesus is a guarantee of what? Better. Better covenant. So Levitical priesthood, there's no oath behind it. If you were the son of the high priest, you're probably going to be high priest yourself. There's no powerful oath given by God himself ordaining you as such. However, <coughs> Jesus is made a high priest by God Almighty speaking an oath. And if the priesthood of Jesus is a ushers in a better covenant, what is implied about the previous covenant? It, it wasn't as good. It's inferior. I mean, if something is better then the other one is obviously inferior. All right, who wants to read verse 23, 24, and 25? The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. There we go. All right, so why were there so many Levitical priests? They died. They died. And the next guy took the office, and he served until he died. The next guy, and just on and on and on and on. But Jesus, however, says, you're a priest forever, because his priesthood is never going to end. This goes back to that because of his indestructible life. He's been inaugurated priest, and he's never going to stop being a priest. And as we already have seen all the things we've written down, he's a pretty good one. And his, he's definitely qualified. So, under Levitical priests, they serve, the priest serves until his death, but Jesus serves forever. And what is Jesus currently doing right now for us? Intercession. Hey, will you prop that door open? Thank you. Is, is it anybody else really hot? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it's getting a tad warm in here. Tad warm. All right, verse 26. Who wants to read? Can I also note, like on 25, that the difference between Christ and the priest is that he's able to save to the uttermost? Yes. Yeah, where they can't. can't do that. They can't do anything. I mean, they, they can be obedient to the commandment God gave them right. and assuage his anger, but they can't save right. anyone. They couldn't save themselves. Correct. Right. Correct. Good point. All right, who wants to read verse 26 for us? But it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Okay, right there. There's a whole bunch of adjectives used to describe Jesus. 
holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. So here's what is implied. That the Levitical priest wasn't holy. Mm. The Levitical priest, they weren't innocent because they were sinners too. They were not unstained. They can't be separated from sinners because they were sinners. And they definitely have not been exalted above the heavens. So when was Jesus exalted above the heavens? At the resurrection. And his ascension. When you read Hebrews, the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension are kind of treated as all one event. The price was paid, it was accepted, and now he's intercession. It's, it's kind of, instead of saying death, burial, resurrection, ascension, he kind of treats it all as the same thing. So you can write those down under Jesus, holy, innocent, unstained, separate from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, and then just write not applicable to the Levitical priesthood, because they were none of that. And part of this is also to make sure people don't, don't worship a man, or a woman for that matter. Because when we look at the biblical high priest, and the perfection's not attainable, um, they're not holy, they're not innocent, they're not unstained, that applies to every man who has ever lived. That's any president, preacher, pastor, king, no one on earth is worth following after like Jesus is. That's why, am I worried about the elections coming up? Not really. Because no matter who sits in the overall office, they're going to be unholy, guilty, stained, a dirty, rotten sinner like us. I mean, no, no, no pastor or president is ever going to compare. So as long as your hope is in the, in the better man, Jesus, you should be fine because you know who wins in the end. All right, I'll read this last verse here. Verse 27. He, talking about Jesus, has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people. Since Jesus did this how many times? Once. 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 And when he offered up what? Himself. Himself. Because the Levitical priests, they would bring goats, bulls, rams, whatever animal was required and they would sacrifice that twice a day. You did morning sacrifice, you did evening sacrifice. Then you would do special sacrifices on the altar of incense. Yep. Then the high priest would, on the day of atonement would take the blood and bull's go, uh, blood behind the veil and sprinkle it on the mercy seat. And they did this over and over and over, century after century, 1400 something years, that went on. So think of the millions of animals that were slaughtered. It says Jesus, he doesn't need to do that over and over. Because the blood he brought, his own, vastly superior to the blood of bulls and goats, and he made it one time. All right. Now, this right here is going to be a problem for certain groups that say, every time you partake of the Eucharist, what are you doing? Doing it all over again. You're doing it all over again. This is Christ's body which is broken for you. This is Christ's body that was broken for you. And every time, it's like Christ is sacrificing himself over and over and over again. He doesn't need That's right. to do it because it, he did it once, once, and it was sufficient for everyone, for all time, all purposes. You don't need to crucify Christ again. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priest, but the word of the oath 
which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. All right. So the law says a descendant of Levi, a descendant of Aaron, can serve as a human high priest. Okay? No oath behind it. But under this new priesthood that Jesus is ushering in, it's not just any man serving as a priest. He's a son. So let's go to John 1.1. 1, 1. This should be a verse that all of you are intimately familiar with. And hold your finger there and go ahead and flip back to Psalm 110 too. So we're going to John 1.1 1, 1 and Psalm 110. Some commentators would tell you that the book of Hebrews is simply an expository sermon on Psalm 110. All right, so Psalm 110, I'll start there. It says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations filling them with corpses. A lovely sight. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. So here's, that's all Psalm 110. And it's quoted often in the book of Hebrews. And in here you see reference to this person that David is speaking about is both a king and a priest. In verse 1 it says, No, the Lord said to my Lord, that is Yahweh is speaking to my master, my king. And this is obviously not David that's being spoken of. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So that's mention of Jesus as king, because it's a prophetic message. And of course, verse 4 is the one that we read often. This is where he's called a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And it talks about what this king is going to do. He's going to execute judgment. He's going to make, um, make the nations his. He's going to conquer the enemy. And all this powerful imagery that's being used. In John 1 1, which I failed to hold my place there. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was him, uh, was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Um, what did, where did I just stop reading? Five. Thank oh. you. Goodness. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. 
He came to his own, to his own people, did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And this, verse 14, you should have underlined. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son, from the Father, full of grace and truth. So here we have that he is the only Son of God. And there's one more Psalm, um, Psalm 2. Should have had you go to Psalm 2 after Psalm 110, but I forgot. Alright, Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away the cords from us. Alright, what's, what's special about that word anointed? Anybody know? Messiah. Messiah. Excellent. Verse 4. He who sits in heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell the decree, Yahweh said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Now, I kind of said these out of order because I didn't follow my notes like I should have. So Psalm 2 is the part that talks about the son, not Psalm 110. See, I could have played that off, but no, I made a mistake. I meant to go to Psalm 2. This is where um, he quotes. Now, this verse here, when, when the writer of this psalm talks about, God said to me, you are my son, is he talking about the day of his physical birth? No. No. What is this speaking about? What event? Okay, that is where my brain went. I went to baptism first because when Jesus was baptized, remember God said, this is my beloved son of whom I am well pleased. Well pleased? Yeah. That's where my brain first went. I have new heaven and new earth written. What's that? I have new heaven and new earth written. Okay, so at, at the revelation, the second coming? Let's go to second Samuel. We got 10 minutes. <laughs> If you, don't, you, if you should have 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14, written by Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. So Psalm 2, 7 correlates to 2 Samuel 7, 14. All right, so... This is God speaking to David. The pastor Sean has been real big on talking about covenants lately. This is, this is the Davidic covenant. So starting in verse 12. Chapter 7, verse 12 is where I'll start reading. It says, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, David, I will raise up your offspring after you, 
who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, who is the immediate fulfillment of this promise that God made to David? I will raise up your son after you, and he will build my temple. Solomon. Okay, Solomon, immediate answer. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. <clears throat> now, at that point, it's no longer talking about Solomon. Because did Solomon sit on the throne forever? No. no. Neither did his son, nor his son, nor his son. Well, especially his son. Especially his son. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's split. Yes. Verse 14. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. So this is not speaking about the physical birth. This is talking about upon his coronation as king. So 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14. Psalm chapter... 2 verse 7, David takes that language and says, this is about me becoming a king. Upon the coronation, I become a son of God. All right, so now back when Hebrews quotes from Psalm 110, which talks about the Messiah being a king and a priest, when it quotes from Psalms about you are my son, that's another allusion to his priesthood. And we see in John that Jesus is this son. So we'll go back to Hebrews and we'll end there about five minutes early. So the law appoints men in their weakness as high priest, but the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. So this son is not just a biological son. This is God the Son, second part of the Trinity. He has become our high priest, vastly superior to the Levitical priesthood in every way, shape, form, and fashion. Right, does anybody have any questions? Any observations? I spoke a mile a minute, and I got excited. So, Just, just our comment, Jesus uses was he quote Psalm 110 in Mark, Luke, and Matthew when he's arguing with the Pharisees, mm -hmm. telling them that like he's bigger than David. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Psalm 10 is is I think the most quoted psalm mm -hmm. in the New Testament. The only one that might come close is Psalm 2, but I'm pretty sure it's Psalm 10. Psalm 22 one, is also a big one. 110. What did I say? Ten. Psalm 110. Ten. There we go. Psalm 110 is the most quoted one. Yes. Good point. All right, nobody has any questions. I'll stop the recording and see you next week.